Turn up your radio. You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Today's episode, Listen to Your Heart. Then we can get down with really wrong, really wrong, really wrong, really wrong, really wrong. In the future, the world changed. Then it changed back. Then it changed again, only to revert back once more to the way it originally was. This is essentially how time operates, moving not exactly in circles, but sort of loop-de-loops, changing and unchanging, like the lapels on men's suit jackets. So really, by the year 2510, things were pretty much the way they had always been. There were some changes, of course. Colonies had begun to be built on two planets. Pneumatic tubes made a surprising comeback, and reality television got a little more outrageous. But for the most part, it was business as usual. The only really noteworthy difference was that people had stopped kissing. You would think that a world without kisses would mean something, something big and sad, something that said something awful about the state of the world. But it wasn't that way. The kiss simply fell by the wayside, like the twist, the crockpot, or sitting backwards, legs spread, on kitchen chairs. The kiss was simply replaced by other, more hygienic things. During courtship, a couple might rub the top of each other's heads or manipulate each other's earlobes. Both of these rituals were considered pretty nice. Sure, people still kissed, but when they did, it was in a highly ironic manner, like the snapping of one's fingers while listening to jazz. Kissing had a kind of archaic, brown-and-white quality. As an anthropologist might trace it, the kiss started its descent into kitsch around 2010, with Rosie O'Donnell's on-screen, on-the-lips, 20-second smooch with a guest's pet schnauzer. It did irreparable damage to the kiss as a romantic gesture in ways that could not at the time be measured. So despite there no longer being kisses, there was still romance and poetry, and even teachers of poetry. One such person was Professor Joseph Putterman. Putterman taught a third-level English poetry class called The Language of Eros, in which he dissected love poems into their iams for disinterested undergrads. Putterman read about kisses all day long, kisses in sonnets, haikus, and even limericks. He had seen kisses in old movies and got the general gist of them. Yet having never actually experienced one firsthand, there was something about all the fuss that felt, to his mind, a little histrionic and phony. Lip to lip. How was it unlike putting your eyeball against someone else's eyeball? It was hard for him to imagine that something like that, something so absurd, could have ever felt soulful, of all things. Putterman couldn't wrap his head around it. What made kisses so worth dreaming about, obsessing over, writing about, and dying for? And when he was completely honest with himself, it was, he feared, his inability to truly understand what the kiss actually meant to these men and women of long ago that made him secretly feel like he didn't truly understand his chosen field of study all that well. He feared that poetry about love, at its core, was completely lost on him. He tried asking his fellow professors if they ever worried about their failure to grasp the kiss, too, but he was unsure how to phrase the question without exposing his own ignorance. 
And when he did engage them on the subject of the kiss, at some point, he always got the feeling that these so-called scholars didn't quite know what they were talking about. It was for this reason that Putterman, 50-ish, never before married, and not exactly a demon with the ladies, decided he had to have a kiss. Nothing carnal or libidinal about it, but not ironic either. It would be a kiss. It would be a kiss in the name of scholarly pursuit. Would something happen, Putterman wondered, through the mixing of two people's spittle? Would some new molecule be created, a molecule, as the poets promised, that would be sweeter than all the honey in the world? As for potential kissing mates, he ran through his options. Asking a student was out of the question. Plus, he thought, the kiss had a better chance of succeeding, of working its supposed magic, if he was even just a little compatible with the kissee. So the way he saw it, there were two possibilities. Option number one was Alice Vaccaro, a mordantly attractive redhead who taught mathematics and had a parking spot right beside his. Sometimes when they pulled in at around the same time, Putterman would make awkward repartee. Pulling in together like that, we looked like a couple of cops in a buddy film. He would say to her three times a month, and three times a month she would exhale sharply, flip her long red hair, and rush off to the building's main entrance. When Putterman approached her in the parking lot with his kissing proposition, she put her hand to her chest as though either a trying to keep her breakfast from coming up, or b reaching for the emergency whistle hanging from her neck. On the mouth, she finally asked. A look of revulsion coming over her. That's where vomit comes from. That's where pate goes into. And so it was on to option number two, Cheryl Fields, a quiet librarian with a delightful overbite, which, along with her pinkish hue, succeeded in reminding Putterman of a pet guinea pig he loved as a child. It was an encouraging sign, he believed. Cheryl worked in the rare books department and often allowed him to take back books to his office that were intended for library use only. She seemed impressed with his passion for literature. Summoning all of his courage, he approached her at her desk, a copy of Petrarch's lyric poems under his arm. All this kissing jazz, he said, for the word jazz had come back in spades, as had the word spades. Do you ever wonder what it was all about? Kissing, she asked. Like on the lips? Yes, he said. Like Humphrey Bogart? She asked. Yes, he said. Just like that. Like doing it? She asked. Yes, like doing it. He replied. She looked off to the side and thought about it. While she did, Putterman tried to strike a professorial pose, which involved holding his hand in a fist and pressing it into the center of his stomach. All the while, his heart beat wildly. Why? She asked. Affecting a tone of casualness, Putterman explained his whole intellectual quest. When he was done, he told her what he had in mind. I would think that for it to work best, we might consider going out for dinner and a drink, said Putterman. And then afterwards, as I believe these things were traditionally done, I shall take you home, whereupon I shall kiss you. Outside your door, of course. You needn't invite me in or anything. Cheryl laughed. And if Putterman wasn't imagining things, she might have even blushed. Okay, she finally said. Sure, why not? 
and so a date was arranged. He was to pick her up after work on Friday. Putterman left the library feeling invigorated in a way he hadn't felt in years. On Friday, after they had finished eating, Putterman attempted a little after-dinner chit-chat. How is it you became a librarian, he asked. My granddaddy always had a lot of books in the house, she said. There's something about the smell of books that just reminds me of my granddaddy. Interesting, said Putterman, though not interested in the least. And do you enjoy reading books? Nuh-uh, said Cheryl. I guess it's mostly the smell of them that I like. After several silent and awkward moments, Putterman produced a book of poetry from his attaché case. I thought I might favor you with a little verse, he said, just to get us into the mood. Oh, yeah, said Cheryl. Please, go ahead. Putterman opened the book and read. O cease to affirm that man, since his birth, from Adam until now, has with wretchedness strove. Some portion of paradise still his on earth, and Eden revives in the first kiss of love. When age chills the blood, when our pleasures are past, for years fleet away with the wings of the dove, the dearest remembrance will still be the last, our sweetest memorial, the first kiss of love. When Putterman was finished, he closed the book, lowered his reading glasses, and looked at her, trying to assess the impression he'd made. Boy, said Cheryl, that's a lot of jazz. The restaurant was chosen for its proximity to Cheryl's apartment so that he could walk her home afterwards. Along the way, they both tried to make conversation. Putterman asked her if she was a fan of the romantic poets, and Cheryl asked what channel they were on. And when Cheryl asked Putterman why he'd never married, he just sputtered, quoting random lines from Sylvia Plath. When they arrived at the front of her building, Putterman was relieved. It had been years since he'd been on a date and was not finding the experience particularly agreeable. Dinner remained undigested somewhere between his chest and Adam's apple, and he had the distinct impression of being covered from head to toe in flop sweat. No matter what, he reassured himself, I will be back home soon, my shoes off, reading contentedly in my solitude. Well, said Cheryl, breaking Putterman's train of thought, here we are. Yes, indeed we are, Putterman concurred. Here is where we most precisely are, to be here and not there. And then, in the middle of his babbling soliloquy, Cheryl grabbed onto the back of Putterman's head and brought her lips down upon his lips. Putterman was completely taken aback. He thought there would be some discussion first, some sort of game plan to go over. But there it was. He had been kissed. How's that? asked Cheryl. It was softer than he had imagined. But aside from that, there wasn't much that was surprising about it. Not really. He wasn't sure. He couldn't compose his thoughts. He muttered something to Cheryl about an experiment well done. After she left him, he stood for a while outside her building, not ready to leave, yet feeling quite silly about just standing there. Eventually, Putterman hailed a cab and headed home. Lying in bed later that night, Putterman found himself unable to read. 
He turned off his table lamp and kept playing and replaying the kiss over and over in his head. How first there were no lips, and then, suddenly, there were lips. And with these lips there was the smell of Cheryl, everywhere. How he was lost in her hair. How he felt her hair all over his face. How he was made speechless. How, as though having inhaled a strong mutagenic, everything in his mind simply vanished. How she withdrew from him, her eyes closed. How everything seemed slowed down. How as Cheryl moved away, his body moved too, imperceptibly towards hers. How for a moment he felt young and calm. How he felt so silly, and felt so silly now to be thinking and feeling things about something that may or may not have even been real. For many, many years, these kinds of thoughts had not been thought by anyone, and what Putterman did not know, could not know, was that he was the first to be thinking them in a very long time. And the thoughts he was thinking were precisely those of a man who had been kissed. In the darkness of his room, Putterman reached for the pencil and paper he kept on his night table for lecture notes. Sitting up straight in his bed, he stared at the blank paper in his hand and pondered a question that had been beguiling poets for centuries. What in the world rhymes with Cheryl? next month and then the following month I'm going to be in Chicago and then in Chambourg and Chambourg where is Chambourg yeah it's a suburb it's like near Chicago are you talking about Chambourg Illinois well I'm okay are, are you wearing a beret right now are you French all of a sudden I'm listen I live in Quebec okay I pronounce it Chambourg do you smoke your Galois cigarettes while dancing to Celine Dion very nice thank you what kind of mustard do you use I'm beginning to suspect it might be Grey Poupon yeah. So anyway, and then um, there might be a couple other places. Wait a in what the hell is that noise in the background? I can hardly understand what you're saying with your French accent and that thumping. What are you talking about? I'm talking about thumping. Oh. Can you hear that? Yeah, I can hear it. It sounds like someone's heartbeat. Wait, hang on a second. Stop for a second. Right here. 
hear that that you hear that yeah I hear it I thought only I could hear it that you see I thought that that was the blood in my head just pumping because I'm I'm feeling stressed out a little bit do you get that when you get nervous you can hear your own heart in your sometimes head? yeah well I can hear I could hear my own heart pounding in my throat <laughs> I'm sorry I make you so nervous but I think something else is going on here today are you in a public space or are people staring at you maybe your heart's just beating really loud and it's broadcasting through the room no, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually in the studio. It's completely silent. Hmm. Do you have a some kind of megaphone held up to your chest or something? No, like it's a, the same as always. Do, do you have like a pacemaker implanted? Maybe the mics are somehow picking up on that. Yeah, I got a pacemaker implanted over the weekend. What are you okay. talking? I'm just, I'm a scientist. I'm thinking this through scientifically. I mean, normally I would not be able to hear your heartbeat through the phone. So. That I wonder if. You know what? Is it possible? I'm participating in this sleep study right now. Why did they take away your comfort blankie? I'm, I've been suffering from insomnia lately. It's not funny. They, they, they've got me wearing this monitoring cuff around my wrist. Does it match your pantsuit? No, it, it monitors my heartbeat for three days. And that's you, you forgot to mention that? Of course that's what it is. Well, so, I mean, what do you need I, another explanation why your heart is being audible through the phone? No, but I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just a little thing. Listen, I don't want to get into like fossicles and ossicles, but obviously this cuff is somehow broadcasting your, your like vital signs back to some base camp where they're monitoring you. Yeah. And it must be that it's somehow on some radio frequency that's being picked up by the board or by your mic or something on the phone. It's that's the strangest thing. No, the strangest thing is that you're participating in a sleep study and not an insanity study because you're insane. Did you did you stop at like a kiosk in the mall and some guy offered you like some shiny object if you'd sign up? I'm getting a free iPod. <laughs> you're doing it for a free iPod? I'm what is he gonna hit you over the head with it and knock you out and you'll go to sleep? Thank you. No, that's that's hard, that's that's very strange. Anyway, um, it's freaking me out a little bit. I don't like thinking about my own mortality. If we can, let's just can we just try to ignore it, please? Sure thing. It's not my heart. Yeah. Anyway, so why are you asking me about my schedule? Oh, because I got a red hot opportunity for you. Oh, really? Well, I've I have a friend, and he does stand up comedy, and he just got back from Afghanistan, where he just did a tour. You know, you know the USO does these tours. And he told me about this guy who arranges for whatever the Canadian USO, like the the CSO or whatever it is, I'm but not, people yeah. entertain the troops for Canada. Okay. And uh, presuming the dates have worked out, I just booked you on a gig in Afghanistan. What do you What do you mean? You booked me in a gig? I'm what, talking what, about what? just south of Uzbekistan, just next to Pakistan. No, I know Afghanistan, but what are you talking about? You, I'm talking you, about the big time. Do you ever see Apocalypse Now? That's going to be you. What are you You're going to be the guy coming in on the helicopter skids with the like Playboy bunnies hanging off it. Well, first of all, I'm not a com- I'm not a stand-up comedian. I know you're not a comedian. Second of funny, all, but... wh- who who are you to be booking me on? What are you talking? You can- you're not my booking agent. Okay, I'll break it down for you because you seem a little bit uh, dense on this one. De- first of all, it- ink's not dry. All I did was offer up your services. You could still commit career suicide and say no. All I'm saying is I have an opportunity. I'm bringing you. A friend of mine hooked me up with a guy who books talent to go perform in front of the troops. You understand me so far? Mm-hmm. You, even though you may or may not have any talent, I mentioned your name, I told him you got a big radio show, and he was into it. You don't get any frequent flyer miles, but you're a chance to go to Afghanistan. Setting aside the job, I think you would jump at the chance to go to this place. There's unbelievable vistas and beautiful like plains and deserts and all sorts of pita bread and all kinds of things that mm-hmm. you would love. 
it's, it's like one of the oldest civilizations on the planet. They have lamb meatballs, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. You love lamb. Well, you have nothing to worry about. You're going to meet the Taliban. It's going to be amazing. Okay, first of all, you're pushing my buttons. All right, I think we, 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 we better back up here. Whose side are you on? Are you on the side of freedom, or do you hate freedom? I like... Don't you support the armed forces, the yeah, men and women, I, the, the proud, brave, and few of, of Canada I, I, who defend the homeland? Because I'm starting to wonder. Let me ask you another question. Did you not tell me that you dreamed of going to Kabul? I've never said that. Okay, it must have been someone else. But the point is, you're going to have a great time. Well, the point and is, what am I going to do to entertain the troops in Afghanistan? I don't have you, an act. You, you want your act? I'll write your act for you right now. you got a pencil. You're going to come out. You, you, you bring a telephone, a prop. Okay? It's called prop comedy. And then you get out there and you make some phone calls. You call me up. We have a conversation. It's the same thing that you do now. Well, you're going to come to this thing? No, I would never set foot in Afghanistan. But you can call me here. Although, actually, that might be tricky because I think there's a time zone difference. But you call somebody. Or you can just pretend. You can act. Pretend someone's on the other end of the phone. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, you got about half a dozen girls half naked dancing around behind you that the troops are going berserk for. Mm-hmm. It'll be hilarious. And then maybe, you know, you do a little, like... um some of those physical comedy things maybe you wear like giant floppy shoes it doesn't matter what you do believe me these guys are hungry for anything and this guy I mean he thinks that I I could do this thing listen this guy has no idea who you are it's perfect it's blank slate tabla rasa you, like what do I have to do like put together like five ten minutes or something just do, like do. some kind of set maybe I could do like one of my monologues or something like yeah, that no, it'll be like an MC thing it won't be five or ten minutes I think the whole show actually I think it goes eight to eleven so what is that that's three hours so it's a three-hour set. Yeah, but I'm not going to be doing the whole show. Oh, no, you will. I mean, there'll be some other stuff happening behind you, but you'll be on stage for the three hours. That's insane. I can't do three hours. I've, I, 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 I could, you know, I'm... I mean, you're always complaining that it takes you a while to get your groove on. I've never complained about that. I don't have a groove to get on. Tell me, are you willing to, to, to fight for what you believe in? And by fight, I mean do a little bit of stand-up comedy, which strikes me as asking so little of you for people who are offering so much. What do you have at home? 2,000 channels on your cable? These people don't have any cable. They sit and watch the sand blow across their tents every night. You, you don't have the time to go over there and bring a ray of sunshine into their lives? Yes, it's a little far away. I know that. So what? So what are you busy with this weekend? You were going to organize your, your albums or something? or I don't even know what you do in that place. All I can tell you is you're, you're being given an opportunity here. Not just an opportunity. You're it's being given just, an opportunity to do what's right. It's, it's just, it stresses me, okay? It's stressful. Jonathan, I don't know why this has you so freaked out. You're a member of show business. You're a song and dance man. You know how to come out. What are you talking about? I'm talking about who can take a sunshine, mix it in. You know, this candy man. You come out with that, maybe like dance a little bit, and then you do maybe, you know. I should range. do the candy man. Yeah, and then you you know you change outfits a few times. That eats up some of the time in the three hours. For three hours. Yeah, and there'll be brass and woodwinds, you know, some sections like that you can play off. You can make jokes like about the orchestra pit, and then you know there's going to be a spotlight following you around. Don't tell me all this is like foreign to you. I mean, you you act like you've never been on stage before. You know, all right, fine. I mean, weren't you Danny in Greece? It's the same thing. It's just on a bigger scale. Look, I appreciate what you're saying. It's it's not too much to ask a person, but you understand that this makes me nervous, right? I can hear it's making you nervous. I hear your heartbeat. It's, your heart is going like a woodpecker on speed. Listen, I'm going to calm you down. Oh, Just yeah? Just imagine this, okay? Close your eyes. Okay, all right. Now imagine mm-hmm. you're standing facing 100,000 men and women in uniform. You're facing an ocean as far as you can see on every side. Eager faces all there to see you. Well, that's not making me calm. You have three hours ahead of you to entertain What them. are you trying to accomplish right every now? Every one of those people has a handgun, 
a machine gun, some hand grenades, and probably a knife in their boot. Listen, this, I don't think this is working. Your heart is going insane. I can't. You've gotten me really worked up. Here, picture you just told a joke, and there's cricket noises, soothing cricket noises. <laughs> Imagine the sound of a hundred thousand people not laughing or applauding. Just cricket this, noises. This is going to be all faulty information for the sleep study. You know what? I just had a great idea for your act. Imagine we get you up on stage, and you have some guy in a kind of like a lab coat, a doctor type guy, comes out and says like. You're the human guinea pig or whatever. We make you a jacket like stuck with tins. Maybe you wear a guinea pig outfit. And then we have your heartbeat mic'd for all these people to listen to. They would all just be amazed at the sound of your heartbeat going up and up and up and faster and faster. And then we have some guys come out and rap to it like a beatbox thing. Like this. Watch. Beatbox for me. I don't. Come on. You do like. No, I don't. You're Mr. Sensitivity, aren't you? What's the matter with you? Do you think it's normal for a person's heart to go this fast? All right, I'm going to go get my cowbell. I could be dying. Do you hear me? Oh, my God. I think I need a doctor. Wiretap today, you heard Gregor Ehrlich. Wiretap is written and performed by Jonathan Goldstein and produced by Jonathan Goldstein with Mira Bertwintonic, Wendy Dore, and Carolyn Warren. Tune into Wiretap Sunday at 1, 4 Pacific Time, and Friday evening at 8.30. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Reach us through our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap. This is not the sound of a normal heart.